That was great. Thank you for that. My name is Dee, and I want to take us into the passage in Mark chapter 1. Um, and I would like to start by um, telling you a piece of my journey. Um, in my high school years, my father uh, lost his job, became unemployed, and found work up in Detroit. And so we moved to a suburb of Detroit. And that's where I had the opportunity to continue my schooling. That was in 1972. And moving from Cincinnati to Detroit, I knew that I had to change allegiances in regard to the athletic teams that I supported because they were different than the ones that I was rooting and cheering for in Cincinnati. And I was moving to Detroit. And the uh, key team that caught my attention early on was not the football team, the Detroit Lions. I was intrigued by the Detroit Tigers baseball team, but I was particularly fascinated with the Detroit Pistons, the NBA basketball team. Thank you. This is before the bad boy years, though. But I am so glad somebody knows that that is the team known for that. Two years prior to my arrival in 1970, the number one draft pick in the NBA was a player picked by the Detroit Pistons. It was Big Bob Lanier. Big Bob Lanier came out of St. Bonaventure College. And what I remember, other than he was an excellent player, really excellent, and a recent fact that probably nobody here knows, he went on to write children's stories. I really like that about him, but he would have never done that while he was this monster of a player, 6'11". But the unique characteristic of Bob Lanier that got a lot of attention was that this guy had the biggest feet in all of basketball. He wore a size 22 shoe. I don't know where you buy that. It's like walking on, I don't know, five by eight pieces of wood. I don't know what that, huge, huge feet. I remember um, somewhere shortly after he was drafted, seeing a picture of his shoes next to a picture of somebody who had shoes my size. It was like twice as big. Enormous shoes. He certainly couldn't have had any problem balancing on them. They're just huge platforms on which he clomped, but excellent player. Later on, it reminded me of a picture that was on my desk for many, many years. It was a picture that my wife took. This is quite a few years ago when my oldest was about two and a half or three years old. We had driven down from where we were living at the time in Poway Rancho Bernardo area. And we came down to um, the ferry that goes across the harbor. We took the ferry across to Coronado, to that wonderful little area that has some shopping and restaurants. And just to the northwest of the landing is that little beach area. And we got off the ferry, went to the little beach. We took off our shoes, and my little girl and I waded out in the water and played out there for a few minutes. Unbeknownst to me, my wife was on shore, and she had taken my shoes and my little two-and-a-half-year-olds and set them side by side on the sand, took a picture, had it blown up and framed, and it sat on my desk for years. It was a connecting point for a very powerful time in my life, 
It was a symbolic picture of the years that were passing and um, that my little girl would never be in those little shoes again, but she kept trading them in for the next pair that she was ready to wear. It also reminded me of a time when she was two and a half, three and four years old, where she would periodically go into my closet and pull out my shoes and put them on and try and clomp around the house wearing my shoes. They weren't hers. They didn't fit her. It was adorable. It was cute. It makes me tear up even today. But they weren't her shoes to fill. She needed to fill her own shoes, unique in her own way, special in her own right, created uniquely by God. I think of those differences. If we were all to put our shoes up here, my guess is there would be no two exactly alike. No two wearing exactly the same type of shoe and the same size and the same wear and tear. A beautiful symbol of the great differences that we have and that we bring to this place. One of the beautiful pieces that didn't get told in this story from the Sunday school class that raised the money, one of the challenges that was put forth, I believe, early on, was it doesn't matter what you can give. We just want everybody to participate, however you can participate. What a great picture of the church. Whatever you can do to participate, that's all we want. We're in community in this together. And let's see what happens when all of us do what we can do. Mark is writing the story, the story of Jesus. And I was commenting with Matt, who did such an incredible job last week in introducing this series, identifying for us kind of the framework where we're going to step into and view in particular this first chapter, but a lens through which to see this book. It made me wrestle with who the Vespasians are in my life's journey. And if that name doesn't ring a bell to you, then go listen to the message on the podcast. And you're kidding. You have a podcast? Yes. Oh, you can listen to this stuff on that if you want to. But it's made me wrestle this week with some wonderful questions about this passage and this book. And so as we launch into this, I, I would propose to you that Mark is taking a huge risk in writing a story that sets itself up against the structures of the time. Religious structures, political structures, economic structures. He is writing something that it appears by everything that we read in its content is intended to be read by a lot of people and sets himself up for being the one who is stepping into dangerous territory. But he speaks boldly. And he's speaking to an audience that wears a lot of different types of shoes. A lot of groups of people in a setting that in some ways is dramatically different than what we experience now, but in other ways there are some incredible similarities. He sets this up 
by kind of drawing the audience in, Matt made mention of it last week with the opening line where he says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is language that would make any reader of that time immediately think of the beginning line of the Pentateuch, the Torah. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's no mistake here. Mark is setting this story up as the story. The identifying story of his people. And let me tell you what's happened with this story. And so he uses language that draws them in by making them sense, oh, I've heard this story before, but I've never heard this story quite this way. It doesn't end with just that line. We hear the speaking in the third verse and fourth verse of the writings of Isaiah. The prophets foretold of this moment. We hear the language of Mark when he says that Jesus entered into the waters of Jordan to be baptized and he came up out of the waters and the skies parted and God spoke and descended. This is language that is so similar to the story that defines the Hebrew people, where the children of God went through the parted waters of the Red Sea and came up out of the waters. The language brings these stories side by side. And it tells us in the Old Testament the geographical location for the majority of the Pentateuch, that being the desert. The storyline goes like this, and God led them through the desert for 40 years. And here in this passage in the first chapter, it says, and the Spirit of God led Jesus into the desert for 40 days. There's no mistaking these comparisons. This is an effort to say, hey, listen, this is the story. This is what we have talked about for generations, and I'm telling you now is critically important. And it's important for other reasons as well. The traditions around Jesus had been shared orally for probably a couple decades. The church had expanded. There was not a body of literature that they went to during their Sabbath worship from the New Testament and said, oh, let's do a reading from the New Testament passage of. There was nothing like that. There might have been a, a letter or two that was circulated by Paul or one of the other apostles. They might have had access to something like that. But there was no organized reading or telling of a written account of Jesus' life. And some of as we look back in history, think that one of the reasons Mark felt it so important was that the story of Jesus was getting used for various people's agenda. As if some of the stories or sayings that were attributed to Jesus kind of got co-opted, drawn into arguments so that something that someone was trying to accomplish would be endorsed because I'm using a Jesus story to try and endorse what it is that I am either teaching or trying to do. 
this becomes very problematic because there are so many different fighting agendas that are competing for one another. The thought is that likely Mark was attempting to bring into written form the collective stories, but the stories of the historical Jesus, the resurrected Christ. The story of the one who walked on earth with us and the one who dwells in heaven and with us in spirit now. Trying to bring these storylines together. And you may think, well, that's great. We now have a collection of writings, and our issues today are so much different. Do they really relate to where we are today? Well, I said before, the culture may be significantly different, but the kinds of things we face, or at least the nature of those issues, is not, I don't think, dramatically different. We have things today that divide us, things that pose the possibility for causes around which we can rally. We have questions for which the answers are hard to uh, come by. We'll make it simple, but we'll bring it really close to home. There are some in our congregation who would say, you know, I really find it impossible to worship without good organ music, okay? There would be others who would say, I really find it incredibly difficult to worship with any kind of organ music, even if it's good organ music. There are some who would say, I don't know how you can worship without the use of the most ancient of instruments, the drum. And there would be others who would say, I find it so difficult to even think about the words when that pounding drum is just beating over and over again. There are some who would say, I can't believe that you are so cavalier about things like the use of alcohol. And somebody else would say, I can't believe you are so cavalier about the abuse in our country of medicinal drugs. Someone else who might say, I, I can't believe that you don't take abortion into account when you vote. And someone else who would respond by saying, I can't believe that abortion is the only issue you take into account when you vote. There would be some who would say, I find it very difficult to talk about human sexuality in church. Somehow it feels, I don't know, profane. And others who would say, I believe that God is the God of intimacy, and I want a safe place to talk about those things. Church seems like the best place to have those conversations. Someone who might say, I, I sometimes get frustrated. It seems like all you ever talk about is social justice when there are so many other things in Scripture. And somebody else who would say, I don't know how you can read the gospel without seeing social justice everywhere. Someone who might speak up and say, I don't know how you can use the excuse, well, that's the brand I've always bought, 
as somehow a way by which to put your moral compass on the way you spend funds on the shelf. And someone else might say, and I don't understand how you can use the World Shopper app as somehow being your moral compass for everything you buy. And I'm assuming in the last five minutes I've offended just about everybody in here. (laughs) And you think Mark's audience was so dramatically different? Or Jesus' audience? Contentions about the law. So, Jesus, we've caught this person in adultery. The law says we should stone this person. How about you? What do you say? So, Jesus, what do you say is the greatest commandment? Pick one for us. Tell us which one is the most important one. We can shift from matters of the law and or the Torah and shift to some of the social issues of the day. We've been told that that really all we need to give somebody a certificate of divorce is just that we no longer want to be married to them. And there are others who say that the only reason for a certificate of divorce is marital unfaithfulness. Jesus solved this one for us. Mark, write about this for us. Or maybe issues of the military. Military have this thing in place where they can compel any one of us to carry all of their stuff for a mile. We don't think that's right. Jesus, what do you think? Mark, put that in your book. How about taxes? Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar? Seems like an affront to me. Isn't that just honoring Caesar as the son of God? Jesus, what do you say? It's into a culture that's in some ways not far different from ours, where we ask, what does this story have for me today? I think part of what I'm startled about in Mark is what's not in Mark. If Mark wrote about the time that we think he wrote, maybe just before a huge Jewish uprising that got completely squashed by Rome, it wouldn't be a surprise that he didn't write about it because it would happen just after he wrote. However, prior to this, There are all kinds of uprisings that are taking place. People are rallying around causes, both kind of objectors that do certain social things, but also others who are gathering together armament to to try and stockpile some things, to put up a stand against the military oppression and the political oppression they were sensing. There are all kinds of objectors And I have no doubt that Mark knew about many of them, probably asked to participate. Except for maybe one or two very vague references, none of those huge social issues of that day make their way into Mark's gospel. I find that fascinating. It's almost as if Mark is saying, there's a much 
bigger agenda here. That's not where I'm putting my hope. Let me tell you the story of the historical Jesus, the resurrected Christ. And then let's see where that takes us. Let's start with those things. I'm also particularly fascinated by the references in this first chapter to the desert. As I said before, in verses 3 and 4, it makes reference to a voice, an Isaiah passage that says, a voice calling out in the desert, make straight the paths for the one who's to come. In the desert. That's followed by the next verse, which says that John went into the desert areas and preached this message of repentance for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then we find in verse 12 and verse 13 that Jesus was led by the Spirit out into the desert, and it was in the desert where he was tempted. The animals became his companions. And he stayed there for 40 days. The desert. It's really nice to get to the conclusion of the desert stories. The promised land. Jesus' ministry. Let's move toward the resurrection. But there is something powerful about the desert. There are things you can only learn in the desert. And it's into this place that these opening lines begin to take us. I don't know what the desert means to you or for you. I don't know what it feels like for you when you feel like you are in a desert setting. I, I find, though, some very instructive pieces in Scripture. I feel like that in the desert there are things that begin to be taken away from us. I feel like sometimes we are stripped of things that we thought were essential but aren't. When you're in the desert, there are things that you feel like you can't do without, but when you're into the desert, you realize they're nothing more than cumbersome, and you begin to let them go. I think the desert reveals, at least to me, those things that have become kind of idols. The places where I put my trust, my security, the things that I thought would hold me steady but didn't. So for me, the desert sometimes begins to strip away that which is not, not essential. I, I also think that the desert does something that's really, really hard and it forces me to confront myself. And I would propose that for many of us, we spend a lifetime trying to avoid who we are. For a variety of reasons, some of which you could argue are really good reasons. <laughs> I, I, some things of my past, some, not, not that I think they're good reasons for you, but that I would argue would be legitimate reasons, experiences, wondering if I can be forgiven, wondering if I'm lovable, 
wondering what I'll find if I actually do confront myself. Will I find nothing? What will that feel like? The desert forces me to go into places of that self-examination that I often don't do willingly. But maybe it's God's spirit that has actually led me into that place. So here in this desert experience, I would propose that sometimes we go kicking and fighting. But there are other times where we go willingly. Scripture tells us that Jesus stepped away from the cloud and went into the solitary places to pray. To be by himself. To commune with the Father. To focus once again. The desert offers moments that no other place can offer. And so Mark starts this gospel with a powerful message concerning desert dwelling. I would like to highlight one more thing about Mark's story, though, that to me is so critical. It says that John the Baptist is out in the desert areas and the people come to him. That statement carries so much weight that gets missed when I just read it in my current culture and thinking. You see, everything important, everything powerful, everything of ultimate worth would happen in the places where those things should take place. So politically, it should be Rome. Spiritually, it should be Jerusalem. At least one of those two major cities, maybe another one. But to think that the good news is being proclaimed in the desert region, not only that, but the people go to John in the desert region, and that's where Mark is saying the good news is being told. And then the characters of Mark's story. These aren't the names that would make it to Meet the Press, or TMZ, or Access Hollywood, or the latest news report. These are not the upper 5% in wealth, in power, in position. And those people, those 5%, were the ones who determined everything. Politically, economically, legally, who gets conquered and what happens following the conquering? Mark's telling a story with the stories of the other 95%, through the eyes of the other 95%. That's where the good news is. What's amazing about this story is that they then proclaim that it is for everyone. It's also for the politically elite, 
the economically wealthy. It's also for those religious elites who sit in their places of authority in communities and determine how certain resources get distributed and how certain communities function and work. But this story that Mark is conveying for all of those people wearing different sized sandals, if sandals at all, different sized shoes, if shoes at all, the people who have been affected by the Greek influence of Alexander the Great and those who had conquered or those who had much more interest in what Rome was doing in the new Rome economy or those who had come from being dispersed to other parts of the known world and had migrated back to this region where Mark lived. These are people from everywhere struggling to make sense of the world in which they are living and into this place Mark proclaims the historical Christ, the resurrected Messiah. All of the things that could divide, all of the issues that we think have to be answered, the ways in which I so often feel like I have to have an answer for every question, otherwise, where does that leave me with no answers? And Mark is saying, let me introduce you to Jesus. Mark is saying that these other things, I, I get why they're important, but let's begin with your relationship with the risen Christ. The God of all creation says, I want to live with you and in you. I want to be in relationship with you. When that relationship comes alive, the divisions begin to give way to somehow finding common ground for unity. The, the anger begins to shift and I find space for grace and a new way of seeing things. The anxiety and stress where I feel a sense of hopelessness, like the mist at 10 o'clock in the morning out here on the point that begins to be burned away by the sun all of a sudden gives way to a new vision of things that I didn't see while the mist was still so heavy. It is as if my eyes see something I'd not seen before. The notion of a relationship with the one who holds all of this right here. God's hands. Mark invites us into this place. All of us. And says, let's start here. I, I don't know what the five easy steps are for you in terms of beginning in the desert. But I think part of Mark's message is it's a great place to start. Nobody really wants to be there, but I'm telling you, it's a great place to visit. And I don't know what that might look like in your journey because you don't wear my same size shoes. I can't tell Bob Lanier or my girl what it means to take this walk 
But I can say this. Take the walk. Led by the Spirit, pushed into those places, feeling lonely at times, struggling with uncertainty. In those moments, maybe it's a time and a place for you to willingly take a step and say, oh God, this feels a bit like a desert to me. Begin to strip away those things that I thought were essential but distract me from you. Begin to draw into my life those things that help to define who I am. Help me to be honest with myself. Confessional and hopeful. I don't know what it means for you, but I'd like to invite you this morning to ask God kind of shoes you need to wear, your own, no one else's, and take a walk into the desert as the Spirit might lead you. Some of you know down deep inside that you're already there and have been there longer than you wanted to be. The Spirit's faithful. You've not been abandoned. You've not been left there. God is at work and knows right where you abide, knows you best, and loves you most. Father in heaven,